2: This is Make It Kind. M I P. With Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get Woke. Ladies and gentlemen, as we continue our observance of Black History Month and we're focusing on our HBCUs, I'd be remiss if I did not invite to join us this HBCU as it was, as I've, you've often heard me say, their HBCU where my mother gave birth to me when she was a senior uh, in 1966. And of course, it is one of my alma maters, having graduated from the Howard University School of Divinity. We are joined this morning by the 17th president of what is known as the Mecca, Howard University. President Wayne A.I. Frederick joins us this morning on Make It Plain. Dr. Frederick, good morning to you. How are you? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, first of all, um, one of the things we want to take a look at is how our universities are doing in this challenge of the pandemic. How, how has Howard University in general been coping with that?
3: You know, I, I would say that we've been doing well, actually. And I think that's because the fundamentals of who we are, what we are about was made for this moment. Um, the pandemic has disproportionately affected African Americans and we've been very interested in healthcare disparities, as you would know, throughout time. And so we set up testing centers very early on in Ward seven and eight, where, um, the population is 95% African American. We now have a vaccination center set up, um, during this period of time as well. And, and that's really servicing. Uh, the community getting African-Americans vaccinated. And we also are participating in a phase three trial for the Novavax vaccine as well, and actually have hit our enrollment target primarily to bring um, African-Americans into that study. So I would say, you know, we've really met the moment in terms of serving the community in particular. Our students, as you can imagine, are affected just like the rest of the country um, and disproportionately so. So we also have given hardship grants to our students, and so our enrollment actually is up seventeen percent, while the rest of higher ed is down three point four percent. So we actually have been doing, you know, um, I would say pretty well, but built for the for the moment is how I would like to describe that. So enrollment has actually gone up. Enrollment has gone up significantly, uh, and but this was part of a trend that we had been on. Applications were going up. We have been making our case out in the public uh to students and, and families that our graduation rate is going up. We've been coming up with innovative programs like Howard West, where we send our students out to Google and have them co-taught by Google engineers and, and Howard faculty. We have Howard Entertainment with Amazon Studios, where several of our students are out there as well. So those innovative programs as well have been attracting talent to the university. So we really anticipated doing well. We were concerned the pandemic might soften, um the enrollment, but it actually did not. I think with students being able to stay home, not pay for food and housing on campus, that actually may have given some students a better opportunity. You know, I, I, I've been
2: wondering too, with the the virtual experience that many having, and as that becomes more proliferated, I, I wonder if that's a, a space that we'll all be required to remain in at some point. And, and does that not help enrollment? I mean, sometimes, Is it easier for a student to attend virtually?
3: Yeah, sometimes it is. But to be quite honest, um, as you would know, having been on Howard's campus, one of the beauties of what we do is that social engagement. Um, There's a self-actualization that comes from being around Black excellence that um, we don't try to explain, but we try to embrace. And I think um, we do it well enough that that's what students get. Having said that, There is a space for that. Uh, We actually are looking at carving out that space more so for students who may have left the university five years or longer and did not graduate. We're looking for an opportunity to give them uh, a way to finish that degree. And and we think that there are there is a market for that. And that would also help uplift our community, especially if we focus on uh, technology type skill sets, teaching machine learning algorithm, regardless of what major you had. Because you may already be in the workforce, and so getting a Howard degree, we wanted to add some skills to to what you already have. And so we're looking at that as an opportunity, given what the environment has taught us. Back to to the health-related issue,
2: though, Howard being one of our handful, few, of um, HBCU teaching hospitals and HBCU hospitals. Uh, I've been speaking with the president of Harry a few times during the course of this pandemic, and... Yeah. we've all kind of seen what's been going on yeah. um i think the latest numbers um um uh, over 25% of of deaths in the pandemic are african american yet we've we're only 5% of those vaccinated it has and being out there in the community um are, are what is is howard um raising that issue combating that issue in terms of the the disproportionate access to vaccine in some of our communities
3: are getting. Yeah, co- constantly um we are I mean not just raising it but we're trying to provide a solution. So that's why we set up a vaccination center. Um you know uh every morning we have throngs of people coming in very efficiently. Uh, we're getting up to uh, an ability to give as many as 200 vaccine vaccine vaccinations an hour. And so we feel very strongly that we can uh, get it out, so we 've been pushing out information on podcasts webinars uh we've been calling our uh, patients to let them know we have the vaccine and set them up for appointments so we've been we've been doing everything possible uh not just to get the word out and to raise the concern about getting more African Americans vaccinated, but we also have been working hard to vaccinate them. The other thing that I would mention about this um our students who are volunteering. Uh, in the center, I think it's very, that's a very important part of the social construct. I think it's, it's extremely important, uh, especially today in our society for African American elders, uh, to see that next generation engage them and for that next generation to be able to provide that service to their elders. I think, you know, people who have come into our vaccination center, I think they can immediately feel that flow of energy. Um, between the, 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 two, the generations that we oftentimes think, um, don't speak, don't connect. And you can see it. You can just see the pride, um, in the patients who are getting the vaccines. And you can also see equally as much the pride and admiration in, in the young students who are getting the opportunity to provide that service. Dr. Frederick, is, is there
2: anything in particular about Howard University's great and long history that has prepared it for this moment of crisis to serve our community?
3: Yeah, most certainly, you know, um, we have been focused on the issues of the African-American community throughout our history. So we have been a trusted messenger. So we're not showing up today with a new message. Um, we're showing up with a reaffirmation that we've had a drum beat on all along. And that is that your Black life matters and that we are here to help serve you. The other thing I think it's important um, to note uh, is that we have to look at our history and our democracy is messy, let's be clear about that. But it still resulted, even in this mess, in sending um, the first black and female vice president to the White House. But what people may not realize is that Howard's charter, the only federally chartered HBCU, was signed on March 2nd, 1867 by the 17th president, Of the united states andrew johnson who actually was an open racist and on the same day vetoed the first reconstruction acts he created by signing that charter the very university that produced that first black female vice president so sometimes i know we we wrangle over the the existence of what is happening in our democracy and it doesn't always work the way we'd like it it's messy but i think overall it does work that's that's actually pretty paradoxical do we know
2: what made him sign the charter for Howard and then in the same stroke, uh, um, deny the reconstruction acts? What do we know what was going on there? Yeah, it's,
3: it's, not clear. You know, obviously the people who bought it for Howard, General Oliver Otis Howard was well respected, participated in the Civil War, lost his arm, uh, um, was, was part of 17 men in the congressional church. So it, it's not sure. You know, one of the, one of the theories is maybe he signed it because he didn't think it would work a university for Black people at that time, right after the Civil War, he probably felt, okay, this would be the concession that I'll give you guys. This is ne- n- never going to come to fruition.
2: There'll never be somebody in the White House from this school. That's probably what <laughs> <it. Right. laughs> that, that probably wasn't even a thought. <laughs> right, right. That's probably what he thought. Um, but but speaking of, of how being a federally chartered school, I know one of the other conversations is, is proper funding for our HBCUs um, where where is that with regards to Howard and, and anything you can share about HBCUs in general? I know everybody went up uh, to see Trump. I don't think anything really came of that. Um, but that's part of the struggle to seeing to it that our HBCUs have have adequate funding.
3: Yeah. You know, funding has been an issue. I think there are two ways to look at this. I think sometimes our schools are described as under-resourced. I myself have used that term. And I've started to make a shift. Because what I think is important is how we spend our money, not that we don't have enough of it. How it is almost a billion dollar organization. So the issue is really is are we prioritizing appropriately and are we investing in the things that we need to invest in? And as well, are we bringing along other friends of the university? So are we playing in the the philanthropic game as well? We have to make our, our argument to Congress because. 22% 22% of um, African-Americans who receive bachelor's degrees come from our HBCUs. And we only represent 3% of the higher ed institutions. Um, Howard produces more African-Americans who go to medical school than anyone else. We have produced more African-American physicians than anyone else. And then when you look at Harvard's MBA uh, program over 50 years, where they got their black talent from, they got it from Harvard undergrad, number one, but number two, was Howard University. So what we do for the country in terms of talent and diversifying requires investment, there's no doubt. But we have to also be looking at broader investment. So I would say right now, that's improving. We, I think we're making a more coherent case um, to the federal government on a consistent basis. And yes, under the Trump administration, there were a couple of things that did take place that helped um, HBCUs, the HBCUs who participate in the capital um, building finance, and during after Katrina had damages and used that money to rebuild their campuses, they got those they had those loans forgiven, um, and I think that that was was a, an appropriate thing to do. Title three funding um, was also expanded. Again, I think that was an appropriate thing to do. But let's remember that there were lots of people in Congress that got those bills passed. I know the White House takes a lot of. Credit for it, but there are lots of people in Congress that had to participate uh, to make that happen. Are you getting signals that the Biden Harris administration
2: is is going to take a, a real and a greater interest in HBCUs
3: and in Howard in particular? Well, uh, what I would say is this: uh, two things. Um, one is the race equity. Uh, executive orders and the focus that President Biden has uh, placed on that um, is a major signal. Uh, You can't talk about race equity in this this country and don't include HBCU in the conversation. So I think in and of itself, they've clearly already made that step. The second thing, as I've been telling my Howard alum, um, the best thing that we can do for VP Harris is to be our excellent selves. Um, We don't need to put pressure on her uh, to bring funding for us. If it's, if we are as excellent as I believe we are, the data will be compelling, the results will be compelling, that she will be the person showing up to the party as opposed to having to organize the party. And that's the situation we need to put her in. Let her colleagues and others um, come to her and say, uh, Howard is doing an excellent job. Your alarm are out in the community doing an excellent job. I try to remind people that many of my alum, including people like yourself, are in the community doing this type of work every single day. And that is ultimately what I think uh, should rise to uh, the agenda in the White House. I, I would agree. And, and you should know, as, as someone who
2: works hard on the uh, H.R. 40 legislation, I'm a member of the National African Reparations Commission. One of the things we, we're arguing for is that any form of reparations institutionally should include uh, our historically black colleges and universities and prioritize those um, that have our teaching medical schools as well because of the health disparities. So um, uh, we're going to be fighting for that. There's actually a a hearing on HR 40, February 17th. And so I'm sure that's going to come up. Lastly, uh, in your own words, uh, Dr. Frederick, how does it feel though? And I agree with you. I, I think that's a good approach to, to be our excellent selves. But but how does it feel? How much pride is there to actually yeah. have a Howard alum in the White House as as Vice President, and and what does that mean in terms of the continuum of history of our great university?
3: Yeah, you know, as a Howard alum and a, as its president and a a big consumer of its history, um, it means a lot. It, it it's a reaffirmation of what we are about. You go from Senator Edward Brooke, the first uh, African American elected, popularly elected senator after Reconstruction. You go from him, um, through, uh, Marshall, uh, the first African American Supreme Court justice, Tony Morrison, uh, Vernon Jordan, and you come all the way to Kamala Harris. So she stood on the shoulders of giants that, you know, participated, some of whom didn't get to see this actualization, like a uh, uh, Congressman Cummings who I think would have been totally overwhelmed with emotion. And so I think it does that. But on a personal note, as I have gotten to know VP Harris as a friend, I do want to underscore to people that while we may focus on her gender and her ethnicity, at some point in the course of the next four years, and I hope it's sooner rather than later, we will begin to talk about her charisma, her experience, uh, her political skills, her intellect, because that ultimately is what is going to separate her from the 48 men who previously held that position. And and all of
2: those talents and characteristics first incubated at Howard University as well. So we want to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Frederick, my brother, so good to see you. Thank you for joining us on Make It Plain. And as an alum myself, I know that I am always at Howard University's service. Please feel free to call upon me uh, at any time, okay? I appreciate that and I appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank let's you, sir. Stay, stay healthy. You, too, my brother. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, another one of our HBCUs, illustrious HBCUs is represented by its president, who has had an illustrious academic career himself, former provost and vice chancellor and professor of history at Elizabeth City State. He's also been a a provost at Alabama A&M, provost and professor of history at Fort Valley State, among others. And he attended North Carolina A&T. So he is a, a product of HBCUs. He received his PhD from Howard and his MS from North Carolina Central and his MA from Winthrop University. Now, he currently serves at the illustrious HBCU I alluded to. You all have heard me say time and time again that I was raised on the literally on the campus of Fisk University. And so how could we focus and feature our HBCUs without talking to Fisk University? We have the president of Fisk University here with us today on Make It Plain, Van Newkirk Senior, Dr. Van Newkirk. Dr. Newkirk, how are you today, man? Man, we're doing well. Just glad to be here with you today. Yes, sir. Glad to have you. Let me also mention those of you who are looking at, at the graphics for our show uh, with special permission of the mm-hmm. library and special collections. It features a uh, mural of one of the great Harlem Renaissance artists who was stationed at Fisk University, Aaron Douglas. And he designed murals within what was in the old library, the Cravath building which is now the administration building. So when I would come home from school every day, President Newkirk, I'd come into the building to my mother's office. She was administrative uh, secretary to the president. And I would always come upstairs and see all these Aaron Douglas murals. And I was mystified by them. They were just so grand for me to see as a little boy. So we're sharing those today. And we thank Fisk for allowing us uh, to do that. Dr. Newkirk, how are, uh, how is, I should say, the university faring? In this pandemic situation, um, how have you all been, been weathering that storm?
4: Well, I could say, you know, everyone's heard the old story about the ant who prepared for the winter. Well, I can tell you this. We were ahead of the curve with COVID. Uh, we formed a COVID task force back in uh, January, late January, before any institution had started that. We started planning for COVID because we felt that it was going to be a major thing in the United States. Uh, we pulled together all of our faculty, that had plans laid out. And to let you know exactly how good it worked. We brought our freshmen in this past fall for a seven-week session. Then we brought the other students in for a seven-week session, uh, single students to a room. But we only had seven cases of COVID on our campus last fall. We did a Herculean task of making sure that all of our students were safe and that we had a very safe and clean campus. And uh, it's helped us because this particular fall, this spring, Our enrollment we have about 88 percent of our students who come back we had the largest enrollment last fall at fisk than we've had in about 15 years Uh, and so you know most hbcus and i remember this was a meeting of the uncf schools uh, this year only nine uncf schools had enrollment gains the rest of them 20 so schools had enrollment decreases of 20 to 30 percent and what was interesting there we had enrollment growth enrollment gains And so people are now looking at quality and looking at the safety that we're able to provide. And I think for us, this pandemic, you know, while it's tragic, it has been a time that Fisk has been able to hone in what it does well. Small school, we're agile, we're nimble. We can make changes. And because of that, I think we're faring well in this pandemic as we go
2: forward. That's good to know. Uh, The the president of Howard was saying the same thing. Their enrollment has actually gone up. So that's a that's a, a good thing. Now, have students also been attending virtually?
4: Well, we got it in both ways. You know, we have a number of students who want to stay at home. They're really afraid, but then we have students who want to come to campus. So what we did is that we reduced our housing capacity to half. So every student now has a single room. Uh, We have two thirds of our classes are online. The students can take if they want to be online, but a third are all face-to-face. And what's interesting about that, our room capacity, we were out of rooms last fall. Uh, This spring, You know, we're pretty close uh, to being out of room, so we feel good about where we're going. And those students who are on campus to make sure they're safe, you know, we're doing a lot of safety checks. We have partnered with Meharry, so we have students doing tests in Meharry. So all those things, I think, are helping us. And unlike many schools, I mean, we're next to a medical college, so we're using that connection to help us. And so we feel very good about the education that we're bringing, the quality of education. And we're also feeling good about what our students are doing. Our students are making some adjustments. Our faculty are making some adjustments. But for us as this small institution, uh, we've been able to adjust very quickly when we had problems. So it's not been one of these long, drawn-out processes. We could adjust quickly when we had problems in class offerings and make the changes that our students needed.
2: Indeed, indeed. How do you feel about the new administration, the new Biden-Harris administration, and what uh, impact that may have on our HBCUs and what impact they that may have, especially when it comes to FISC?
4: Well, you know what's happened. You know there have been a couple of COVID relief packages that were passed by the prior administration, uh, and there's been some forgiveness loans that were passed by the prior administration that has helped HBCUs. We're looking for a closer relationship in Washington. I think for us, you know, I like going to Washington at least once every couple months to actually. Uh, build relationships, create new partnerships. And I think having this relationship with the new administration is going to be important to be able to build and to grow and have people come down and visit our campus. You know, and I want to say it in this way, in that the past administration, we did have meetings with them in Washington. But the one thing that's missing, I think, was having people come to see exactly what we do, come to our campus, see what we do, experience the things that we do. I think that's going to help people have a better understanding of HBCUs and also an appreciation of what we do. I think uh, our vice president of advancement this past year, he did a survey of students who recently graduated from the university. And we had about 100 of those students to respond. Now, I want to tell you this. This is really important is that the average income of those students was about 75,000 per year. They only been out of school one to two years. And so what's happening is that we as a university at Fisk, we're not just preparing students for, for a college degree. We're preparing students for the jobs that exist. It's a lot different. There's jobs that exist and good jobs. And so what's happening there is that we are marketing directly to our uh, partners out in the community. We have partners like Google. We have partners like Cravath, Swain and more, which are major law firms. And we're actually preparing students for the jobs they have internships and that's helping us go. So the administration, I think, having connections uh, to an institution Knowing the institution, I think that's important for us and being able to come down and see what we do. I can tell you all these stories, but, you know, it's it's nothing like seeing it, seeing and meeting our students. I think that's the important part.
2: Is it too early or have you already been in touch with the new administration? I know the prior administration made a big deal about getting the photograph with all the HBCU presidents. But has anything happened with the new administration yet in terms of direct contact and, and maybe getting them to agree to come and see Fisk?
4: Well, you know, right now, I think, you know, they've been kind of preoccupied with some uh, court cases in Washington. But I think, you know, they're making some inroads and they're reaching out to people at this point in time. And I think we should see something, I hope, in the next month or so as they reach out to us. It's important to note that uh, our vice president uh, has some sorority connections and those connections. I'm a Greek. And so, you know, because I went to Howard, I've got some connections that we probably can reach out and touch her. And so that's important for us you know, someone that we can reach out and touch that's high in the government. I think that helps us as a university, but, you know, getting some other people because, you know, she's obviously not in the department of ed every day and, and not talking with them every day, having the department of ed involved with our university, knowing what we do. I think that's important. That gets us the, the connections and the inner workings that we need to be successful.
2: Since you mentioned her, talk to our audience about the significance of having someone in the White House, who's a product of an HBCU?
4: Man, I I really wanna say we could not have asked for a better choice to be vice president. Uh, And I think what's important about that, what I mean in regards to uh, HBCU growth and progress, she understands she's been a product of an HBCU. Uh, She knows the uh, nurturing aspects of an HBCU. And I think that's going to help us us to build and to create You know, for so long, we've had people who've been in in power in Washington who perhaps drove by an HBCU or perhaps had a few presidents come up, but not really know the culture. And I think that's going to be important for us in order to have someone that can explain it from a top level, that can actually advocate from us for the top. And I think that's the key part of getting the recognition and getting the support we need to be successful. I think uh, as a small institution at Fisk University, you know, we do a lot. We're the best kept secret in North Nashville. But uh, what I want us to do is to be the best kept secret that everyone knows about across the nation. I think having a person who's actually gone to an institution that's a sister institution to a FISC, that's going to help us a lot because that's going to help us get our message out and get it to the right people. And people can then understand because it's been valid. I mean, she's validating the
2: quality of education
4: mm-hmm. that we produce.
2: And and I admit it's impressive to hear uh, the income level of, of those coming out of Fisk so soon. I mean, that that says a lot right there. Uh, tell our audience a little bit about, we don't want Fisk to be a secret, um, a little bit about Fisk's place in history and some of the ways that Fisk has impacted America and, and American history and black history. Well, you know, I always
4: say that the birthplace of the civil rights movement is Fisk University. You know, if you go back and look at some of the early leaders that came out of Fisk, we got Ida Wells that came out back in the turn of the century fighting lynching. You go to the next level, we got W.B. The Boys, who's intellectually starting the NAACP fighting injustice. So we go through history. We got uh, John Hope Franklin, who's writing books, who's talking about some of the persecution and what's going on. And those books are becoming important tools that people are reading and writing. And I think what's important, uh, if you've never seen this, if you go to Fisk, in our uh, art museum, they have the original plates of the souls of black folks. And that's a moving exhibit. If you just see that box of those old brass plates to think about that book and its impact, well, it's right here on the campus. If we go forward into history, you know, we got John John Lewis who came out of the university. Uh, John Lewis is pushing and fighting for the university. We've got others who've come out. Kim Whitley is a graduate of the university. So I'm saying to you, when we start talking about social justice, And we start talking about the impact of this university. You know, I was writing an article the other day and I started reusing these words. Fisk was the primary advocate of civil rights in the South. And someone asked me, why would I say that? And I started going back tying our graduates together and the things that they did. And they said, you need to say, it is not just this birthplace, it is the civil rights movement in the South. And so, you know, I will say that and I think our impact is, far beyond the size of a small school. Uh, Last fall, we started our John Lewis race, John Lewis social justice center. And uh, that was an offshoot of our old race relations institute. We had a race Relations institute for years, which advocated for, uh, you know, equal treatment across the nation. And it closed about 10 years ago. And we actually kicked that off again. And, And right now, Uh, we have majors that actually sprung off that. We have a social justice master's program, the only in the South. And uh, what's been important about that social justice master's program, uh, we just kicked it off last fall. We had about 200 applications for about nine spots. And so I'm just letting you know that is a major program and, and we're getting more applications each day. I think this spring we did take in some students, but we only had about six student spots and we had about I guess a couple hundred applications coming in for people who want the training and the training that they get is going to be a unique pitch. Where we look at our history, we look at what's happening in the world. And then our archives are just absolutely immense with issues and cases that they can research. So I think that's what's allowing us to say that we are the birthplace of civil rights and we're the continuing force in regards to civil rights as we move forward.
2: And, and no, that's beautiful. And, and, and isn't it true that part of our struggle, part of us attaining our civil rights is getting people educated to make a difference in society. The fact of the matter is, you know, most African-Americans going forward in higher education in the professional world are still being educated at HBCUs. Isn't isn't that true? That's
4: it. I mean, we have. Um, uh, I, I want to, I want to say a footprint that's far beyond our size, HBCUs. I mean, we're graduate. We have about 15 to 70 percent of all blacks that are in college over HBCUs now. The numbers have gone down. But what's important about it is that we turn out the majority of black physicians. They come from HBCUs. Uh, the majority of black lawyers, they come out of HBCUs. It's because what we're doing right now is that we're instilling in these students confidence. We're instilling in these students a sense of pride. They don't get in many other institutions. And I think at our institution, you know, we are doing a. A yeoman's task to get our students to understand who they are and to take part in leadership roles. And I think that's helping us a lot. I, I see young people come to the campus who may not be quite as confident as they should be. But when they leave the university, I mean, they are tigers. And I think that's what we turn out. We take people we take them for tiger pups. We make them tigers when they leave there and they're ready to fight the battles and move forward.
2: And no question about it. And, you know, I, I've been saying to others, I, I'm, I'm 54. So growing up on campus, um, me and some of my peers felt like because we've been raised on HBCU campus, we didn't necessarily have to go to an HBCU. Um, so I went to Georgetown at first, um, but I worked for Coach Thompson. So it was like being at an HBCU. Um, I, I say to my peers today, though, our children, it's time to go back. Um to to return to our hbcus for just the reason you said especially as we see the way frankly uh even in the past four years race relations have deteriorated our young people need to go back and just like you know they tell us to recharge these new electric cars Mm -hmm. go and plug ourselves back in to our own historic institutions don't we
4: we do i think you know the black lives movement and what's happening in our country I think that's actually opened up so many doors for HBCUs, as students try to reconnect with what's important. And they try to reconnect in a nurturing environment. And I think what's happening for us is that we've actually told our story. We're telling our story all across this nation. And that's one of the things that's happening as we build our enrollment. Students are coming back because they like the social activism as Fisk University and what we do. And we wanna make sure that all of our students are endued with that. So we have a special curriculum that students pick up when they come to the university. They talk about social justice. They talk about the university's impact. And I think all of those things are important to new students. And it's important to what's going on in America now. Uh, I also share this little story with you. We started a branch campus, first branch campus in the university's history in Clarksville, Tennessee. And it was targeted toward the military. And uh, that campus, we've been increasing our enrollment about Hundred percent each semester. I mean, it's been doubling each semester since it's been it's been a three semesters. But we got a lot of young men from the U.S. military, and we started asking, "Why are they coming to Fisk? And why did you pick Fisk University?" And they said, point blank, although there's a state university in town, they wanted an HBCU experience. They wanted to experience what we offered, and that's been our biggest selling point as we've been in this town. so we feel good about it, and we're giving them an HBCU experience.
2: Dr. Newkirk, that's that's outstanding. And it's good to know. We so appreciate you being here with us. Brings back um, a lot of great memories whenever I'm in Nashville and and on campus. And folks, at one time, Fisk was called the Harvard of the South. Uh, And, uh, you know, I used to say, well, maybe we should call Harvard the Fisk of the North. But (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I remember I was a, a little kid when they installed the Du Bois statue. Um, and um, was glad to be back there a few years ago for his 150th. Uh, and so folks, Fisk is doing a lot of great things and yet it is another example of one of our great colleges and universities continuing to play a significant role uh, for our people and continuing to educate them. You heard him say how well Fisk graduates um, are doing. And I also know how, how active uh, Fisk alumni are uh, as well. So that's a great thing. Dr. Newkirk, we we wish you well, and we're glad Fisk has you, man.
4: We're glad to be here. And I tell you what, we're trying to make our, our mark. So our mark is uh, started. We started with some new things at the university. And I'd like to see everyone come over and visit and give us a call and look at what we have because we are ready to go.
2: Indeed, indeed. Again, Fisk University was that's 1866. So Fisk was, of course, one of the, the earliest ones um, that was founded. Um, and they've been been on the front line educating our people for over a century, uh, and so we appreciate that, Doctor Newkirk. We thank you, sir. Doctor Mark, thank you again. All right. All right.
5: I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Toure. Be sure to check out Democracy-ish, where we channeled the frustration, rage, and absurdity that was the 2020 election, as well as discuss the current state of the political climate and our country from a Black perspective.
2: New
1: episodes available every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you stream your podcasts.
2: And ladies and gentlemen, joining us next to round out our conversation with this triumvirate of great institutions we've talked to today. Another one of my alma maters, along with Howard. Uh, I didn't go to Fisk, but I was raised on that campus, but I did graduate from Howard and graduate school and UDC undergrad, undergraduate, and of course, I'm speaking of the University of the District of Columbia. We're honored to have with us today our dear friend and brother who hails from Tulane. He's been a leader at Tulane and then at Jackson State and in the Southern University system as well. So he has a great deal of experience when it comes to being an administrator at some of our best colleges and universities. And he to also talk to us about the HBCU experience and how UDC is faring in this pandemic. Dr. Ronald Mason joins us from Washington, D.C. Dr. Mason, how are you, my brother? I'm good, Reverend. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Always good to see you and good to talk to you. And, and well, let's begin there. How are things going at, at UDC in the pandemic? How have you still been able to meet? How well have you been doing and still meeting some of the needs of the students?
6: We're actually, as an institution, uh, doing pretty well. We were fortunate in a lot of ways. We had a strategic plan called the Equity Imperative. That was really rebuilding UDC as a uh, model for urban higher education. And it turns out that we didn't have to change the plan at all because of the pandemic, because we were headed in the right direction anyway. When we had to uh, go to emergency remote delivery, uh, we had just upgraded all the technology and all of our full time faculty had been trained in uh, teaching online. And so we were able to make the pivot really well, uh, and based on surveys, the students uh, said we did a good job. Our retention rate was up, which means that the students that were here, uh, we served very well. You know, the challenge for us, though, was students transitioning from high school to college, because, you know, most of the students we could come straight from D.C. public schools. And so we lost enrollment, and that was where most of the loss was, uh, with students that really just couldn't get education high enough on their list of priorities to be able to uh, get an education as well as take care of their life needs at the same time Uh, because we serve we serve students with high needs especially in our our open enrollment door that we call a community college Uh, and so in that area uh, you know we're still working with the public school system to try to find them and get them back on track
2: that's And that's really why UDC exists. That's always was one of the historical challenges uh, in D.C. And for generations and probably to some extent still is, you know, you come out of high school in D.C., you have real life adult things. Sometimes there's a need for for remediation. Um, And it was easy. You know, man, folk my age graduated from high school were fortunate to get jobs in the federal government and now are retiring. And didn't go to college, didn't have to. So, yeah, that that's the and and that's the unique situation. As a matter of fact, let's deal with the uniqueness. So I always want to get this right. UDC is the only urban land grant institution. Do I have that right? Not quite. Okay, I'm sorry. Help me with that. So,
6: So we are the only public university in the nation's capital. And we're the only exclusively urban land grant university in America. You know, Land grants were founded to democratize education, but most of them uh, work in rural areas. But schools like Cornell work in rural and urban, but we have one service area, and that's the District of Columbia, which is exclusively urban. And so that, that's one of the things that makes us unique. Now, if you want, want a few other things that make us unique, uh, we're basically a university that is an entire higher education system for the District of Columbia. And so, unlike most other universities, we do everything from workforce training through uh, technical and uh, academic associate's degrees, through uh, bachelor's degrees, all the way up to PhDs now. And also, we have a law school, as you know. Uh, and one of the things that we're doing is connecting the pathways from the when you walk in the door for a workforce certificate you can actually see the entire workforce pipeline all the way up through to a bachelor's degree. And we have multiple credentials and multiple on and off ramps along the way so that you can, for example, in technology, you can start out as a coder and end up as an electrical engineer, but then work and get off and on as if you never left in between. Uh, And we think that really is gonna be the model for the future of education and, and we're ahead of the game in that regard. A-
2: absolutely. Um, the the other thing uh, uh, too, UDC is is still for those who don't know still a, a primarily a, a commuter institution. There's not, you know, uh, on campus residency. So it's uniquely designed for students with life challenges, life demands who often work and have jobs, have children, uh, families. It's it's really built for that, is it not?
6: Well, that's our niche and that's our history. You know, uh, 1851 Martillo Minor uh, School for Colored Girls. That's our root. Um, But you know, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, we're a historically black university, uh, but we're we're about 60% African-American and a little over 50% of our students are half eligible or Pell Grant eligible. Uh, And so, you know, just like the district is really two different cities, uh, you know it's the richest and poorest city in America. You know, we, we kind of cover it all. And so, you know, we have some students that come to us with great challenges, uh, mostly from DC. Uh, but we also have some students that can afford to pay tuition. Now we have the, we're the least expensive university in the DMV as well, the, the, the district and the surrounding area. And so you can get an education at UDC. You can get a, a, a engineering degree for about $50,000. Uh, and then get a high paying job uh, at the end of the degree. So you don't have that anchor of debt around your neck. Uh, So we have a niche. uh, Now, and the other thing, and you know this, let me just throw it out there. You know what the TAG scholarship program is, which is the uh, federal program that pays DC high school graduates $10,000 to go to school at other state institutions um, and $2,500 to go to other HBCUs. And so we get a lot of the students that can't afford to go away to school, even with the TAG scholarship. Uh, and so we have a special niche, which is why our vision is to become uh, a, the model for urban student success. Uh, Cause that's where our focus is and that's what we do.
2: And that's kind of where it's headed. I, I mean, I think people realize even in this pandemic where the technology is going. Now, now you wanna go back though, you said something interesting. Your teachers were already trained to go virtual. So why was that? What, what prompted that in the first place?
6: Well, as I was telling you, we, we do have a, a plan that we've been following, right? And the plan is to, to build UDC as a model for urban student success. And so in the process of implementing that plan, uh, one thing we knew we had to do was upgrade our technology. And I have to thank uh, Mayor Bowser. You know, she's been putting money in our budget to help us do that. Uh, but also uh, to be able to use electronic tools in the teaching process and learning process. and so we've just just been going through our faculty every year and more and more and more have been getting trained. We've probably been at it about three years now uh, and and by the time we made the switch, about eighty percent were already certified um, but then we required that uh, all of them had to be certified to to teach online. and then we moved to the um, to the uh, adjuncts and now, all the adjuncts have to be certified to teach online before they can teach at UDC. And so you know I think we're doing a really good job with that and, and, and the surveys that we put out to the students um, kind of confirm it.
2: you You alluded to a few fields, but but what are some of the, the professional fields where UDC is is graduating the most students?
6: Well, we cover cover quite a bit and depends on what, what level you're talking about, okay? And so if you come in uh, to the workforce uh, training program, workforce certification, which is free to every district resident, right? Uh, That's technology. Those are healthcare workers. uh, Those are hospitality workers. Uh, You come up through the um, uh, associate's degree level, those sort of track the the workforce programs, but then the teacher programs kick in. Uh, From there, uh, we have, you know, a school of business and accounting and business administrations are are strong suits there we have the college of arts and sciences which is our largest college and that's uh criminal justice that's political science uh that's also social work uh then you move over to the school of engineering which is uh electrical engineering computer science uh, mechanical engineering and civil engineering uh and then uh, i'm missing a school and i think i got them all oh and the law school of course The law school which is nationally ranked uh, best for diversity best for um uh, for women one of the top 10 schools for women in america and so you know we have a lot going on here uh and it just depends on uh you know what area of the workforce that you're looking for but i think what makes us special is that we can provide workers at every level of the workforce Uh, and so now we have phd programs in engineering and computer science We also have a really neat program in, uh, oh, that's the other school I forgot, Causes, which is our land grant program uh, where we touch 30,000 D.C. lives a year. Right. Um, But we also have a a Ph.D. program in urban leadership, which is catching a lot of uh, attention nationwide because um, urban leadership is going to be a trend for the future since most of the world is going to be living in cities in the next 40 years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, And in that vein. When we think of a lot of our HBCUs, of course, we we talked to Fisk and Howard today. Their their residential campuses, um, you know, they're in areas like that. Um, talk to us about how it's still, even at an in an urban institution like UDC in the middle of the city, commuter. How that's still. Is a contribution to the HBCU experience. In other words, you don't lose any part of the HBCU experience at a school like UDC.
6: No, you don't. Um, and we have some housing, uh, but we don't have a, a large number of residential students. You know, we're primarily commuter, um, but we do have uh, the same homecomings. Uh, we don't have a football team, but we have a basketball homecoming. As you know, we used to have football and we don't have the band. Uh, now, I've worked at two other HBCUs, and I know what a big deal the football team and the band is, uh, but we do the best we can. And our student leaders do appreciate the HBCU culture that we bring to the table, and I'm sure you remember it from the day, days you were here. In some ways, the fact that we don't have ta- dormitories really worked in our favor during this pandemic, because I know a lot of the institutions have students in dormitories, but taking classes online, which, you know, doesn't do a well, I mean, it's not a value added when you can stay home and take a class online for a lot less money, uh, which is why I'm hoping that some of these students will look at the value added of just uh, going to UDC for a semester. We can we can take them and give them the credits and then send them back where they came from when they're ready to go. But uh, you know we're HBCU through and through, uh, and the students wouldn't have it any other way. If you look at our mission, we claim the HBCU space, and I know you know HBCU ism, if if for lack of a better way to put it. It's really a culture and a perspective and a relationship with the students that, you
2: know, we share with every other HBCU out there. About it. And you heard uh, President Mason mention the law school. The law school used to be stand uh, stand alone, folks. And then it merged with UDC. And I remember when it happened, you know, that, you know, all the other private law schools are in Washington, D.C., Georgetown, American GW and everything. Uh, but then I started noticing a whole lot of folks were like, "We need to go check out the UDC School of Law," and it has grown so exponentially, and has, and as he said, has really been a leading, leading ranked law school in the country. UDC is one of our public institutions. Now, again, folks, the struggle is the statehood, so we say a state institution, even though DC is not a state yet. That's what we're all struggling for. But, but having said that, there's you know what you get from from the the, the DC government. Uh, the soon-to-be state, but um, is there any is there anything you find optimistic in the new administration? Will this new Biden Harris administration benefit UDC's needs, President Mason? Do you think?
6: Well, we hope so. Um, uh, all the signs are there. Uh, there seems to be a new appreciation and understanding of the value of, of historically black universities. Uh, and I think I don't think it's about uh, any charitable uh, you know, feelings coming up. I think America just needs talent. Uh, and they realize two things. One, that most of the talent in America is in the 90 percent of the population that has to share 22 percent of the wealth. Right. And so they're brown, they're black and they're disadvantaged. Um, but that's always where HBCUs have specialized in finding talent and uh, developing it. And so if America needs talent why not go to the institutions that are experts at at developing talent where most of it is. And so I really think it's a self-interest uh, that's arising in, in the nation and in the government that is focusing more attention on HBCU. So there's that. Right. Uh, and then second, um, you know, I think that the, this administration has a, a greater sensitivity. Um, and, and And of course, the vice president went to an HBCU. Right. And so uh, there's a perspective there based on uh, firsthand knowledge that I think can't help but help, but, but, but bode well for us as a, as a sector of the industry. Uh, time will tell, you know, I've been around a long time. I've been on three president's advisory committees for HBCUs uh, and the, the words always start out with a high level of excitement. Um, but then, you know, when the cameras go off, sometimes thing level, things level off. But you get a sense it may be different this time. And so we'll, we'll be pushing to what I think is our advantage at the moment.
2: And, and let's be honest, coming out of this pandemic, um, the economy is going to change. Some of us are going to have to go back and learn how to do something else, y'all. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah. or brush up on what we didn't get a chance to brush up on. Right. Uh, shoot, folks, we sitting at home anyway, might as well. I mean, and, and you wouldn't want to take advantage of situations like that. From this is Black History Month, <clears throat> from your perspective, President Mason, having been at several HBCUs at, at our landmark HBCU HBC <laughs> now in Washington, D.C., talk to us about the importance of HBCUs in our history as a people. And yeah. if there specific reference to UDC and it's important, it it's its place in history for our people. Sure. So
6: um when you say our people, uh, you specifically talking about black people, but I also think that HBCUs have been important to the American people in general. Right. Um, look, HBCUs are institutional reflections of black people. And so, um, you know, the two things about black people and black institutions is one, uh, that, um, we've always been denied access to wealth. That's the way America is designed. Uh, and so HBCUs uh, do with a dime what a lot of institutions do with a dollar, I and mean, that's that's true, right? But the other thing about it is that uh, we we outperform, uh, you know, when it comes to the production of um, of graduates in key areas, especially in the sciences and STEM areas, you know, HBCUs mm-hmm. overperform beyond any any reasonable expectations. And and that's the same thing true with Black people. I mean, if you look at what we've had to, to deal with and been challenged with over the course of history and then go to the African-American Museum downtown and see what we've been able to do in spite of it, uh, it really is, you know, a wonder to behold. Uh, the fact that we're still here and still sort of holding America to, to, together until it can figure out its race issues and, and get past them. Uh, so there's that, right? Uh, and then the other thing is that... Um, you know, we really have uh, been able to uh, drill deep uh, to find the talent that America has, in many ways, wanted to stifle and, and suppress. Uh, to because you know it really is a rigged competition, uh, and so you have to get rid of the the co- some of the other competition to keep the rigged competition rigged. Uh, but we've we've persevered in spite of it, uh, and because of that, you know, the nation is 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 still in the game of trying to become America that it claims it wants to be. Uh, and, and I think HBCUs have been at the forefront of that that conversation and that fight.
2: No question about it. And and so have you. We appreciate all you've done. Now, we so UDC can brag a little bit, folks, because we had Fisk on 1866. How is 1867? UDC is actually 1851. Right. Uh, uh, Myrtilla Minor, an abolitionist, the Colored Girls, the normal school for colored girls uh yeah. 1851. Uh, right. And uh, so UDC has uh, um, bragging rights in terms of longevity. Uh, yeah, we do. And look, you mentioned uh, UDC and
6: its history. You know, the history of UDC is the history of DC, right? Uh, Myrtilla Minor merged with uh, Wilson School for White Girls, which became DC Teachers College, which merged with Uh, Federal City College and Washington Technical Institute, which became the University of the District of Columbia. And you can just sort of watch the progress of the district from being a territory to a home rule jurisdiction, and and, and the university has been right there, step in step with it.
2: Another great history, and still making history every day, folks, um, with the work that UDC is doing, and, and we're so thankful for that. President Ronald Mason, our very special guest of uh, all of our presidents. They've all been here. Howard, Fisk, UDC. And we're so glad to have had them all. Thank you to President Mason. Thank
6: you, Reverend. I appreciate the opportunity.
2: All right, my brother. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe and wherever you get your podcasts. Please give the show a five star rating and please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been May Play.
5: Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.